1: Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk.
2: You want the mic closer, or you want me closer to the mic?
1: I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the architect Moshe Safdie, who has designed some of the world's most influential and memorable structures, from the 1967 modular housing scheme in Montreal known as Habitat 67 to the Marina Bay Sands development in Singapore. In our conversation, Safdie reflects on his more than 50 years in practice, delving into the deeper context behind his most notable projects, and underscoring his aspirations as a humanizing force in the context of megascale urban structures. Safdie is 85 and has just written a memoir called If Walls Could Speak, published last week by Atlantic Books. We spoke over Zoom in early September of 2022. Safdie was in his office in Boston, and I was at one old street yard in London. It's worth noting that his mic malfunctioned, so we were left with just the Zoom recording for his end of the conversation. So apologies for the slightly less than ideal audio quality. All right, so here's my conversation with Moshe Safdie. I hope you like it. So I just finished reading your autobiography and um, in a way that's the kind of premise for this conversation, taking stock of your life and your accomplishments in architecture and I feel like we need to start where you were born and where you spent the early parts of your life in Israel, growing up in Haifa, during the formative years of the state. And I wonder if you can just take me back there, take listeners back there to to give a kind of picture of your childhood in Haifa.
2: So there were, you know, looking back, there were turbulent times. Uh, Not just before even the state, there was a Second World War. I was born into that war. And I have memories of of the war and, you know, memories of the threat of uh, uh, Rommel coming up with the German army uh, up into what then was Palestine. But the real uh, powerful experience that I think shaped me, uh, and I keep thinking as I see my kids growing up and my grandkids growing up, when I left Israel at 15, I was really quite a totally formed person in terms of values and attitudes and ideology, which hasn't changed much. And I think that had to do with the kind of intensity of the times. There was, uh, you know, the making of a state, but it sounds corny, but it was making of a state. There was a war of independence. The fighting was in the streets of my own city. Um There were, it raised issues. I have memories of people looting uh, in my hometown and then uh, joining the youth movement, which occupied our whole life. You know, the youth movement was the center of everything, which probably explains why I was not a very good student in school and going to the kibbutz in summers and working there. All these were just like very powerful uh, even though you think about it, I was 13, 14, 15. it's like kid, a kid but didn't feel that way.
1: Mm. Yeah, it seems like you were forced to mature
2: quite early on in your life. And you moved
1: And I, I didn't before. feel particularly young when I
2: got married at 21 you know I mm. mean that even for then was young. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so you moved with your family to Montreal when you were 15. This was in part because of um, complications with your father's uh, business. It was very difficult for him to be, in effect, an entrepreneur. Uh, The government wasn't very uh, accommodating to his business. So um, as a result, he immigrated to Montreal. Um, Could you talk more about the kind of culture clash or kind of uh, transition from Israel to Canada and the effect that had on you as a young person?
2: So, first of all, leaving Israel was super traumatic. You know, I felt like I'm being uprooted. It was painful. You know, I would write my friends every day as we left. I think there was kind of an interesting moment uh, that my parents decided, well, we had to travel and wait for a visa uh, in Milan, but even besides that, we basically traveled through Europe for about three months, which included France and England, London, uh, France, uh, Paris, Versailles, uh, Rome, mm-hmm. Milan, uh, Lake Como—you know, the whole region—and that was, uh, in retrospect, just an amazing opening up of the world. Uh, not just even, you know, all the. Monuments and, and architecture that like Hadrian's Villa and the Pantheon and and the cathedral in Milan, the Duomo, but but even food, you know, like all of a sudden all these tastes and and I think that my parents probably were doing this as appeasement, a kind of a, to sweeten the blow, but then arriving in Montreal in March, melting snow, everything gray. You know, a brick city essentially, very shocking, very shocking. I go to the to finish high school. I had two years and a month or two, and I go there and they say, "Oh, Moshe is too difficult to name. We, we we're going to call you Morris," and, and you know all that and and even feeling so strange with the Jewish with the Jewish uh, uh, students in in my school because they seemed like another world altogether to to. To a young Israeli, so it was shocking, and uh, with fair amount of unhappiness at the beginning, and then you know you adjust and things change. And what I did find is a couple of wonderful teachers, and and actually became much more interested in my studies at mm-hmm. high school in the last couple of years.
1: Can you just tell me briefly about those teachers and what kind of influence they had on you?
2: Uh, One of them, I remember his name was Bernard, uh, Mr. Bernard, who who was an English teacher. And we did the book of Job and we did Julius Caesar. And, you know, King James, you know, I studied the Bible for many years in Israel and hated every moment in the original language. And here's King James and a, a teacher who knows to present Job with all its you know, moral complexity and it just opened up the whole Bible for me. I became avid reader about the Bible, other books and uh, it, and, and Julius Caesar was like an introduction to Shakespeare. But really, you know, what a wonderful teacher can do is just open your eyes to to language, to, to the poetry all of it all. And the other teacher was a chemistry and physics teacher. And, uh, you know, I had a inclination to the sciences and i just gulped it all you know i just loved physics and chemistry and math
1: mm. i mean from how you're describing these experiences as a, as a young person it sounds like there is a real precociousness as well as a intense exposure to difference early on especially through this trip through europe before arriving in montreal with your family as well as the kind of ideas and um, influences that these teachers in your high school were exposing you to in the arts and sciences. And, I mean, it just reminds me of a title of a relatively recent traveling exhibition of your work, which was called Global Citizen. And the fact that, you know, essentially at the age of 15, (laughs) that's precisely what you weren't. And the reason I'm trying to reinforce this is because a lot of people um, now and even at the time would have difficulty understanding how your career really commenced in architecture. Because at 24, I think you were 24, um, you had secured the uh, commission to design Habitat 67 for the Montreal World's Fair. And I think now especially now but even then that seems like an unprecedented opportunity Um, could you tell me more about the events around your research and your academic development that led to you getting that
2: commission so there were a sequence of events Uh, the first occurred while i was still a student Uh, the central Housing and Mortgage Corporation, which is the Canadian equivalent of say the US HUD, the housing agency, uh, introduced a new traveling scholarship. One student from every school in Canada traveling together to study housing in North America. And I jumped on that and it was life transforming. We had an interesting professor who was our guide from Toronto And we traveled from essentially one public housing complex to another, and they were proliferating all over the U.S. cities and Canada then. Uh, They were still freshly built, but already uh, you could feel the, the, well, you could feel the tragedy of what they were uh, causing and, and trying to resolve unsuccessfully. But also, you know, Levittown and Chatham Village and some uh, luxury apartments. And I came back thinking anybody who had a few dollars and had the choice went to suburbia. But that seems so unappetizing that surely if someone could invent a housing form, urban housing form, that gave you the quality of life of a house. And I came back like for for everyone a garden and every apartment a garden and we must reinvent the apartment building. I literally wrote that. I wrote in my written thesis, a case for city living and described in words what habitat is. Mm -hmm. So then in the thesis itself, I adopted the idea of modules with the idea of factory produced components. And the genesis of habitat is in that thesis but I kept at it. So when I was at Cannes, I would continue working on it and sending uh, drawings to the UN uh, refugee commissioner suggesting to build a, a, a city for the Palestinian refugees with modular factories. And, you know, I was uh, very intense and I'd say driven. And so when Van Ginkel comes back, my professor, who was my advisor on the thesis and say come back to work on the master plan of Expo as a civil servant basically and leave Khan prematurely which was a sacrifice I sort of uh, with a lot of uh, spa, I say uh, yeah but I want uh, an agreement that I can pursue my thesis as a potential pavilion and you know he had nothing to lose he said sure why not you know
1: I just want to pause a bit on this part of the the story, which is your experience working in the office of Louis Kahn. And first of all, I want to understand more about the kind of daydreams you are having, speculating or fantasizing about these encampments or these kind of far-off projects, or are you saying refugee um, facilities for Palestinians? Tell me more about the kind of idealism that you were displaying
2: at the time? Well, there's a combination of my political sensibility and, uh, and my ambitions as an architect. So my ambitions as an architect is this idea of a housing system uh, expands to become a city. And I started thinking in terms of the aggregation of modules and forms of pyramids, half pyramids, essentially, Uh, In my thesis, the buildings were vertical. And by then, I'm trying to incline them so that there are gardens open to the sky. And I'm looking for structural forms that would allow me to do that. Um, I used to call them membranes. But then there's this idea that we've got to do something about the Palestinian refugees because, um, you know, we have no... Chance in the future, unless that somehow gets resolved, because those going to be uh, a source of conflict, and so these things get to, sort of get mixed up one with the other. Um, and actually, I was serious about it, and I pursued it later when I went back to Israel and I was older. After Habitat, uh, I joined forces with uh, uh, Victor Rothschild, uh, you know, and went looking for sites and discussed it with uh, Shimon Peres. And so this was an ongoing thing sort of intertwined with my ambitions as an architect.
1: Mm. There's so much optimism and even utopianism in that kind of thinking. Uh, And there's a real, I would argue, productive naivete as well that often comes with youth and is uh, very quickly shed once one enters real the real world, the real constraints of professional practice. So I want to understand now how this kind of optimism was translated into the Habitat project. And I'm thinking about kind of comparable schemes that never were turned into um, physical artifacts. So projects by the Japanese metabolists uh, are primarily paper projects, Uh, or Yona Friedman's um, kind of large-scale infrastructural um, renderings of a, a city above the city of Paris, for example, and maybe even Paul Rudolph's um, fantastical megastructures.
2: Paul came after.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Paul Paul came, well, that's a separate to your question, but Paul came to visit, with uh, together with Pei and Philip Johnson, the building under construction and it blew his mind. <laughs> uh, and it, his modular habitat looking stuff followed, I would say. But I knew well-versed with the metabolites, with, uh, with Candelius and Woods, the group called Atbat, uh, with Yona Friedman, I was versed with all of that. I thought the difference in what I was doing was that I was thinking of a buildable project. And even the original scheme for habitat, which didn't get built, with the rhomboids and and the much larger scale, was buildable. I mean, and I knew that the first thing I need to do is get a serious engineer, good engineer, but a serious engineer, because I had to make decisions: is it going to be a frame? Is it going to be load bearing? Is it going to be concrete? And and luckily managed to get Commandant, which came with a lot of baggage because. Commandant was concrete automatically. If I went to someone, maybe La it might have been, uh, he might have steered me into lighter construction. Commandant was a concrete guy. Um, and just for, for listeners who might
1: not recognize that name, this is an engineer you brought with you from Louis Kahn's practice. Is that right?
2: I think I'd bring him with me when I got funding to be able to pursue the project. And the funding was available by a grant from the cement companies. I, I then went to Expo and got uh, authorization. And I, I went to, to actually not to Philadelphia. He lived in Montclair, New Jersey, and and asked him to, recruited him. Uh, he was actively working with Khan and others on many projects. I think Khan actually was pissed off uh, when, when I, I did that but Commandant immediately rose to occasion. I mean, he saw there an opportunity for him and that became by far his most significant project uh, as an engineer. Hmm. And he had this confidence where you know, he, he looked at the studies and the models and he said, yes, it can be done. And then thereafter starts the, the, the drama <laughs> after the, yes, it can be done. And, <laughs> and so the difference is, we were thinking construction, and you see the differences in the from the metabolist and the others in the detailing of the what makes habitat at the end a wonderful place to live in, uh, as distinct from abstract mega, you know structures etc. Which I myself was storing with before I built habitat.
1: Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, what got built was really just a fragment of the original proposal. Um, it was, it was trimmed down because of cost constraints, but in a way, um, captured the imagination of a whole generation of architects, uh, as well as future clients of yours and the, pub- and the public. Absolutely. Um, I mean, on its 50th anniversary, it made its way into, um, the Canadian memory through its featuring on the postal stamps you know i think it's part of the public imagination uh, certainly and also i think emblematic of of the times and these kind of utopian aspirations of the 60s i mean Buckminster fuller was also part of the world's fair in
2: montreal and And designed very supportive very supportive yes
1: there's this anecdote of him being brought in to inspect uh, the progress on Habitat, I think from organizers of the World's Fair who were maybe a bit skeptical of this young upstart and what was going on. And he got he gave his kind of seal of approval and also handed you uh, a charm bracelet.
2: He <laughs> <You laughs> put it um, right on my arm and he said, this will bring you luck, you're going to need it. <laughs> so to me, this
1: must have all been quite a heady and bewildering and dizzying experience in a way you're kind of being acknowledged and anointed by it. Um, in the case of fuller this high priest of futurism and speculative architecture and then the project ended and in a way your life was changed forever what happens after that
2: so i get inundated with commissions uh, for habitats, New York, Puerto Rico, Washington, Tehran, and also a couple of other commissions that, like the Students' Union in San Francisco State College. And I dive into them with a the feeling that everything is possible now. You know, like I'm on top of the mountain, I've conquered the world, and 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 everything will be relatively easy now because, I mean, after this... Um, got done. And lo and behold, for different reasons and uh, different circumstances, they fall apart one by one. Um, and in the case of San Francisco, because it's hippie architecture, and in the case of uh, the habitats, because of the complexity of the real world and economics and and unions and whatever... And I, rec- I recognize that doing this out of the context of a World's Fair is a different story altogether. And it gets very depressing because the only housing project I get is Cold Spring, New Town in Baltimore. And what I'm doing there is hardly radical revolutionary of what I was hoping to do. And so, you know, as things are in life, other things pop up. One was Israel and Jerusalem. Which got me into a, another focus altogether, and later on, non non housing, non development institutional commissions, uh, the Quebec Museum, National Gallery, Hebrew Union College, uh, also in Jerusalem, and that's another ball game altogether. That's the realm of culture and and symbols, and actually I. I start really getting into it and enjoying it a lot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for, a while, I, I, for a while the idea of radical housing transformation is a kind of on hold. <laughs>
1: There are so many projects in Israel that you've been involved in. And I guess you started practicing there in 1970 and have, as a result, devoted more than half your life and practice to building in Israel. Uh, And at one point, I understand, you were tempted to even run for mayor of Jerusalem. (laughs) So a very intense relationship to that place. I want to Now, kind of focus on what brought you back to America. And as you outlined in your memoir, it was the prospect of teaching, and teaching at
2: Harvard in particular. I left America, just to be clear. I commuted to Israel. Hmm. And it was a crazy commute, because I did it a a week, a month. But I, I stayed, remained based in Canada until 78. And what was very difficult is that through those years after Habitat, I didn't get a single commission in Canada, not one, not even a house. And, you know, I'm getting these commissions elsewhere in the world, whether they were built or and then uh, unbuilt and then in Israel. And... Uh, wondering what is all this? The National Gallery went for competition. I didn't make the shortlist. And I, you know, I was outraged about not making a shortlist of 12. I, You know, as I tell in the memoir, I write Trudeau a kind of, and I knew Trudeau by then because I traveled to China with him uh, in 73. And I say, what is this? Uh, but uh, I, re- I recognize that there's an issue and then Harvard pops up and it solves a lot of issues for me. And uh, one of which is that I've separated or divorced from my wife and I am with Michal, my my new partner and she's in Israel and I'm, anyhow, we, we converge on Boston. That's a personal solution. But I also recognize that I didn't have much chance in Quebec at the moment of resurging separatism. And ironically, I get to Boston, and the next thing I do is, over the next few years, all I'm doing is Canadian buildings. Mm. Most of what I do is Canadian buildings in succession, like six national institutions in succession, all competitions except for one.
1: Right, so that includes the National Gallery, as well as, among many others, the um... Public Library in Vancouver, the Library Square Project. I'm from Vancouver um, and obviously grew up with that building as a part of my, a significant part of my life. I mean, before, before we get to those projects, I want to talk more about your transition into teaching and leading the urban design program at Harvard. Because it seems like there was some friction or tension or a difference of, Position um, there, which seemed to manifest itself in your um, speaking out against certain trends in architecture that revolved around this this kind of nebulous theme of postmodernism. Um, Could you tell me more about the atmosphere at Harvard while you were leading the program there in urban design and? What exactly was uncomfortable to you about what was happening in the School of Design?
2: Uh, You know, the context is that I I come to succeed uh, Jerzy Sultan and Willow von Molke, who were uh, heads of urban design before me, you know, modernist uh, people with a very intense social commitment and conscious. Uh, and uh, the first thing I do is kind of do a whole review of the uh, curriculum and reorganize the department and bring in development. But something funny is happening because I'm teaching in the studios, I'm teaching students of architecture and urban design and landscape. And we had this Jerusalem program, which was very popular. So this was real... Multidisciplinary series of studios. And I'm feeling not directly from the dean uh, and, and a couple of the old time faculty like uh, McKinnell and McHugh, who are, you know, old old time modernists, but from the younger faculty who are k- kind of into postmodernism in an intense way a kind of attention, a kind of resentment. And um, And besides which, I'm very outspoken about it. So I give a talk at the school in which I express my views about what's coming under this umbrella of postmodernism, about its permissiveness, about its escapism. I write a piece in the Atlantic, which is a lay press, not a professional press, uh, uh, extending that criticism. And it creates a lot of antagonism, not just in the school, but in the profession.
1: I just want to hold on that Atlantic article for a moment. So it was called Private Jokes in Public Places. And you are effectively voicing your frustration with work from the likes of Charles Moore, Stanley Tigerman, Aldo Rossi, Robert Venturi, Frank Gehry. And there's a lot of blowback in in, um, you expressing your opinions about the work from these people, and it, essentially your frustration with...
2: Ooh, naming names was really taboo in a in a late pre- press.
1: Can I wondered if you could help me understand what exactly the frustrations were. I mean, it's kind of embedded in the title of the article itself. Can you unpack that frustration with the kind of irony of, of the postmodern term?
2: First of all, I felt that I was completely... Uh, uh, in uh, agreement that that the modernist movement per se and, and many of the prototypes that have been put forward had failed. There was no, you know, I mean Team 10 already expressed that kind of um, Team 10, the, the European group expressed that. And so the, what I felt is yes, that solutions failed but the social commitment that led to that movement is completely valid and, and, and central as ever. And the postmodernists were saying, not only has it failed, but the whole parameter of framework around which it was premised is failed. I mean, even today, Rem talks about, you know, uh, the fact that we cannot uh, pretend that we can solve these real big problems. We can. Uh, the limit to what we can as architects intervene and 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 so i felt that the reframing of the mission of architecture was in itself uh misdirected and actually uh if i could say so politically irresponsible my political being was in this discussion as much as my architectural being mm. uh, and uh, as I think that the proponents, I mean, the practitioners like uh, Michael Graves and, and Charles Moore, I think politically were very uh, framed, saw things differently uh, in terms of what the mission is. And it got hot, heated, and, you know, there were different formats, like the design conference in uh, at Aspen, where... Uh, I framed one of the years around that question.
1: And just for listeners who aren't familiar with this debate you organized in Aspen, it took place in 1979, and you invited a whole roster of participants from within and beyond the discipline of architecture. So you had figures like Robert Stern Uh, as well as people like Christopher Alexander, author of A Pattern Language, fashion designers like Izzy Miyake or Pauline Trigere. You had aircraft designers, evolutionary scientists, mathematicians. So I think in this list, uh, in this list, we start to understand in a way where your frustrations lie and where your ambitions or where your optimism for the potential of, I guess, an alternate form of postmodernism lay. But what I wanted to ask you is then, where does a building like uh, the Library Square in Vancouver come from? And I just want to summarize for people who aren't familiar with it. It's essentially a Roman Coliseum in downtown Vancouver.
2: <laughs> well, uh, it, it, it was part of a sequence of public buildings. And the program the program was quite interesting because they said they want to have an urban room, actually they didn't quite call it that way, but they wanted to have a major space, which is outside the control zone of the library, which is open almost 24 hours, which has shops and cafes and people can come and be there, even if they're not within the library activity. So it's a fascinating extension of the function of a public library, which fascinated me. And so, I. I started saying, well, the way to do it is is flip the library. We have all the traditional libraries, uh New York public or others, the 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 Beaux arts buildings, you got the reading room in the middle and it's wrapped around with stacks and it's got opaque opaque walls towards the city. Let's reverse it. Let's put all the public life and the perimeter, let's put the stacks in the middle.
1: I love just how much you leaned into the Coliseum reference though, because it it's a literally, it feels like a direct transposition of that building into this very modern environment. I mean, Vancouver is one of the youngest cities in North America. And so to have this, this um, miniaturized <laughs> ancient structure in downtown Vancouver uh, is quite surreal. And to me, it is a a...
2: I'm it was a, almost the same size.
1: i mean to me there's a kind of equivocation there that i really enjoy and admire the fact that on one hand you're as a, a kind of emerging let's say emerging architect or young architect articulating these frustrations with the dominant aesthetic and theoretical movement in the discipline but then at the same time you're open to embracing it at certain moments as well I mean, one thing that really strikes me about a lot of the work that your practice has produced is that it's really difficult to find a common thread. There's a resistance, I feel, to establishing any kind of signature or real repetition. I mean, if we look at the the library in Vancouver, there's a second iteration in Salt Lake City. But it's different. And then that thread kind of ends. And we could say the same about other projects as well. They have doppelgangers, whether it's the jewel uh, in Chengi Airport and um, the airport you designed um, in Jerusalem. I mean, there are these echoes or resonances um, formally. But at the same time, I think it's very difficult to say, stylistically at least, what a safety building is or ought to be or what it looks like. I wondered if you could talk more about just the variety of work um, and whether or not there's a conscious resistance against any kind of repetition.
2: I know that it used to drive the critics crazy that there isn't that signature style. I mean, you know, Richard Meyer building automatically, you look at it, you know, Richard Meyer and it can be in Spain, it can be in Frankfurt, it can be in Atlanta. It's, it's a powerful personal language that overwhelms place or differentiation and program. And so on. I think one factor was that I took very seriously the power of the place itself I was working in. But that doesn't explain all of it. I mean, you know, the, the museum in in the Punjab is very different from Crystal Bridges in Arkansas for many reasons. One is stone and concrete, the other one is wood, but also the setting is different, the climate is different, the vegetation is different, and the the whole culture is different. So I marvel in the differences, and I bring them out, and I enjoy them because I think that I'm making buildings that are more rooted. For me, this is the pleasure of designing what i do i mean i think the work got richer as i let go and i worked with what i had to do and i just to me this is the joy of of re-exploring reinventing and that's i don't know how to do differently so it's not that i decide i don't want a signature style and i see a lot of common elements that i take from project to project they get transformed you know it's like i take the dna but then something else gets a mutation mm. I, I allow things to mutate maybe that's a way of putting it
1: oh know, you've just opened up um a tangent we we i can't not follow into your interest in evolution and morphology um but before we go there There are just two projects that are actually quite similar, do have a lot of resonance that um, your office has completed relatively recently. The first is Marina Bay Sands, this mixed-use resort in Singapore, and then uh, Raffle City in Chongqing. And And there there is a kind of new scale of project that these two schemes can indicate. And it's a scale of project that's in the multi-billion in terms of uh, the costs, uh, it's a it's a scale of project that is monumental and significantly alters the skyline of a city as well as the public life of the city. Um, and in that sense, it's starting to reach maybe the scale that a project like Habitat was always aspiring to. It's a mega scale project, these two projects I mentioned. At the same time, the economic realities that allow them to exist are extremely, obviously, profit-driven. I mean, you mentioned, I think in the book, Marina Bay Sands brings in $100 million a month. It is, in addition to being um, a kind of altruistic urban gesture with civic or public space at different levels of the building, and most significantly, along the very top in this um, linear park. It is a casino as well, and a luxury hotel amongst many other things. And I wonder how you, as an architect uh, who had designed a project like Habitat, this utopian scheme, how do you start to reconcile your formal or social ambitions with the economic realities of these megascale projects?
2: There's a whole set of fascinating issues in your question because first there's a transition from working on institutional projects and projects which let's call them outside the marketplace to all of a sudden being thrust into the middle of the marketplace. They couldn't, it, it's central. The, all these projects and many of the projects I'm doing now are being done for developer, developers. And if they're not going to meet the requirements or the demands of the market, they just won't get built. So when, out of the blue, Sheldon Allison approaches me to, to take on uh, Marina Bay Sands, it was a competition. Uh, and it happened at Yad Vashem of all places at the Holocaust Museum,
1: right you were in the line for the bathroom, and he wheeled up to you and made you the offer
2: <laughs> and and so you know my my wife said, "Are you really going to take on a casino and you know i have I have issues with it every time I go to a casino and particularly if I go during the daytime recently, for other reasons, I went to see one that's in Boston and it was daytime and there were these obviously poor people putting the money in machines and sending it away, literally. It's, it's painful. It's exploitative. It's uh, Even if it's in Asia, part of the culture. I mean, it's clearly in Asia, part of the culture. It has always been. But... I look at the program, the casino is 2% of the area. It includes museums and theaters and hotels. And it is really a, a small microcosm of the city in Singapore. And I say to Michal, my wife and myself, this is an opportunity to create an exemplary public realm, to show what a public realm can be that transcends the mall, and, and, and you know that even though it's private, it works well as part of the city. And that's the way I went about it. And I don't regret it. I didn't think at the time that I'm creating a symbol that will represent the country, which is what it's become. In fact, I'd say more than that, Marina Bay Sands is almost a symbol of Asia. I mean, when the BBC covers Asia, they show Marina Bay Sands uh, as a background. Uh, and that happens, you know. It happened to Utson in Australia. It happens. I, you know, it's amazing, and you realize you did something, something very dramatic that's very memorable and etches in people's imagination. Now, one thing that happened to our office as a as an office is that once we did that, we knew we can do anything, any scale. You know, we don't have to be SOM or HOK or 5,000-person office. We are 80 people here can do any scale project anywhere in the world. That's an amazing sense of, of
1: potential power. Is it really just 80 people? I didn't realize.
2: We're 80 people in Boston, and it would say worldwide, we're probably 100, 110. When we did Marina Bay Sands, we grew to 130. But we've never been like the 300 of Zaha or the 200 of Frank or the 1000 of SOM, you know, I mean, we're a compact studio Mm -hmm. and it's amazing that we can do that with this number of people. When Raffle City came from a private developer in the aftermath of the success, there was no casino involved, more difficult because casino pays for a lot of stuff like museums and there is no casino. It really is a commercial project. Could you make something that of that scale that is contributes to the city life and to the people who are working in it and living in it? I feel that what we've learned with Raffle City and several projects that now have followed is that we are very effective in taking the density and scale that generally produces very inhuman results and making a big difference by the way we put it together.
1: And Humanizing the Megascale, it's a title of various lectures you've given over the past decade. And it's a real focus, it seems, of your practice now. And what seems to have been happening more recently is a revisiting of the habitat scheme, asking the question, how do these ideals of effectively a garden for everyone, um, how do the ideals of the comforts of one's house translate into the realities of mass housing? These questions are being asked within the context of market development now. And you've established a research fellowship at Safdie Architects to investigate these kinds of questions. And it's actually led to some... Um, built results. I wonder if you could talk about how in the end you've managed to translate something of the essence of habitat into um, contemporary urban environments.
2: Two factors are uh, at work here. One is a increased ambition in Asia particularly, not only but particularly, to explore uh new housing solutions. And it's most prevalent in luxury housing because a lot of developers are now finding that hiring star architects is a good marketing device. And out of these star architects, they're getting a very wide variety of responses, as, as we all know. Uh, we're, in some ways, on this bandwagon, the sense that our name and habitat as a concept and idea are used in the marketing of those projects. But it also means that the developer is committed to trying and replicate as much of the living conditions and amenities. And we achieve it by compromise, actually. There are projects, for example, in uh, Sky Habitat in Singapore, which is middle-income housing, where half the people have large terraces and half the people have balconies. And not everybody has, you know, the perfect house in the sky, but it's a quantum jump from any conventional apartment building that's built in Singapore in terms of the quality of life that it offers. And, and so by accepting some compromise, we're having many more projects realized. But was what's fascinating, uh, that there's so many different fronts in the United States now, we're doing modular housing in timber and you know that can go to medium densities up to eight stories high and it is extremely sustainable and you know using cross laminated timber and we're looking at it to apply it on a large scale in the ukraine uh, once hopefully rebuilding begins and we're working in all places you wouldn't expect in florida on prefabricated modular medium-density housing. So you you're dealing with different components of the issue in, in 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 different places. But the most rewarding thing is to see that it's now the mainstream in the avant-garde. That young architects, the next generation, they're doing habitat-like stuff all over the place. And and that is full cycle. It took sixty years.
1: It's so in a way, symmetrical, the, how your career has been bookended by this exploration of, of humanizing mega scale work or of uh, alternatives to the point block tower, basically different ways of um, achieving density and urban development. And it just makes me wonder now about what you see the legacy of your practice being. I mean, you're in your 85th year now you're about to publish this memoir. I read that recently you donated your apartment in Habitat to McGill University along with your archives. You're beginning to, in effect, plan your exit from, from, the, from practice and speculate about what, what continues on without you, and I wondered if you could reflect on that here for a moment.
2: First I should clarify I'm not planning my exit from practice I realize that circumstances I don't control will eventually create an exit of practice but as far as I'm concerned as long as my health permits me and my mind is 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 clear I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I don't intend to stop and I'm working with a uh, together with a wonderful group of people who Many of whom have been with me for many many years, Uh, and it's and I'd say many years, twenty five years, and 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 twenty years, and it's a second cycle because one group has already retired. So you know, there's generations here who are people who have who have made all this possible, working together. Um, So in terms of legacy, there's two aspects to it. You sort of wonder all this work you've done over the years, what would, what's the outcome? What's, and I can say that uh, luckily I've lived long enough to kind of see it. I kind of already feel that that one thing building that happened in 1967 was the beginning of something that has a life well beyond myself and well well beyond uh, any individual practice. And for my own practice, I hope that they embrace these principles. I'm sure that what they'll do when I'm gone is different uh, and is, is, is theirs. But I hope that the values and the principles and the lessons and the experience are all there contributing to what comes out of it. And it's a mystery that I will not know the answer to.
1: Mr. Safdie, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
1: Scaffold is a project from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thank you to Moshe Safdie. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Cregan. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.
0: D-E-R-M dot com.